0: Amen. All right. I want to welcome everybody to the Master's Class here at Life Change Church. Life Change Church. And we are in the book of Genesis, chapter 14, verses 1 through chapter 15, verse 5. We're, we're going to move and book some ground here today. And uh, we we'll are be talking about Abraham's victory. Now today, we began with a historical look at the battle of two large groups of kings. And it makes you wonder why in the world would God include this battle in the book of Genesis? Now, the answer is that God is using this series of events to demonstrate the growth of Abram's faith. Now, there are ten kings mentioned in chapter 14, and only one of them is a king of righteousness. He's one of my favorite kings to talk about, but that's all right. And this king does not appear until the very end of our story in chapter 14. But when you look at it, the chapter is really a cameo of the history of all mankind with its kings and its conflicts. And then at the last, at the very end of it all, we're going to have the coming of God's true king of righteousness. Jesus Christ. Now, this is an important chapter because it mentions several things and concepts for the first time in the Bible. We'll see for the first time in the Bible the concept of a priest. And then we'll see also uh, for the first time kings are mentioned. And then war is described, and this is actually the first battle that is described In the Bible. That's not the first battle that occurred, but it's the first battle that's described in the Bible. Now we'll also see the use of the bread and the wine. Oh, so early. The bread and the wine, right? And then the giving of tithes is mentioned for the first time here in the Bible. So this is a Bible, uh, this is a chapter with a lot of firsts in it today. Now, the discussion about the priest really brings into a sharp focus, God's thinking about the priesthood and what he really wanted as a priest. God's ideal priest is not a ritual priest after the order of Aaron, but a royal priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that's the name of that 10th king I was talking about. Now similarly, the first mention of a king shows that God's ideal king is not a warrior king like Cherador Leomar, nor a wicked king like Bera, who is the king of Sodom. Rather, God's ideal king is a worshipping king like Melchizedek is. And we begin today by reading about the battle of kings. You guys ready to get started here this morning? Amen? Amen. Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 14, verses 1 through 2 says, And it came to pass in the days of Aramphel, king of Shinar, arioch king of Elisar, sherdor Leomar, uh, you guys try to say that name multiple times. sherdor Leomar, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of nations. That these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, and Shemimber, king of Zeboam, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. So, The context behind this battle is that in ancient times, there was a well-used highway that ran down from Damascus all along the east side of the Jordan as far as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, at that point, it was intersected by a major caravan route running east from the Mediterranean to Mesopotamia. Now, the conjunction of these two highways was what gave Sodom its strategic importance. That's why these uh, kings wanted to fight over this, this whole area here. So the coalitions that form are uh, four kings from the east, which seem to have been the most powerful, and include the warrior king, Sherdole Amur. And then there are the five kings from the plains of the Jordan, which included Bera, the king of Sodom. So that's the context behind uh, this battle. Now verses 3 and 4 say, And all these were joined together in the vale of Siddim. Which is the salt sea. Twelve years they served Sherdor Leamor, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. Now, notice that we are told that the kings of the plains all served Sherdor Leamor. Now, from this description, it is the rebellion that brought the kings of the east to come against Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, it's apparent that this was not the first time that these kings had fought, because the kings of the east. Had subjugated the cities of the plain of Jordan. So now, just as a side note, this verse also makes the first mention of two numbers in Scripture. And that's the number 12 and the number 13. Now, if you've never done this, and we've done this a couple of times in our class, we've had a couple of lessons just on numbers, and it's I do a study of numbers in the Bible and their meaning in the Bible, it's a really interesting study to go into. So here the number 12 is said to stand for government and the number 13 is said to stand for rebellion and apostasy. Now, I'm not going to read these next group of verses. I'm going to kind of skip over But as you progress through verses 5 through 9, there's an impressive list of victories by the kings of the east. And then we get to verses 10 and 12 and they talk about the uh, collapse uh, and the defeat of the five kings of the plains. So let's start with verse 10. And the vale of Sidon was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain. And they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their victuals and went their way. And they took Lot, Abram's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods, and departed. Oh, now notice that it says, and they took Lot, Abram's brother's son. So here we see the real reason this battle is listed in Scripture, right? Lot, who had begun to live in Sodom by this time, was taken as part of the prisoners and the booty of the conquered cities. And God is going to use this event to build the faith of Abram. Now, our story continues as we read that Abram delivers Lot. Verse 13 of chapter 14 says, and there came one that had escaped and told Abram, the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and brother of Anar. And these were confederate with Abram. So when the kings of the east left the area of Sodom and Gomorrah with their captives, they moved along the west bank of the Dead Sea, which was not too far from Hebron and Mamre, where Abram was dwelling at that time. And from there... He could see any movement that took place down towards the uh, the Dead Sea. So he could see this congregation and this army moving along that way. Now, then we get to verses 14 and 16. And it says, And when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. And he divided himself against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus, and he brought back all the goods, and also brought again his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also, and the people. All right, so we see here that Abram armed a group of servants from his own household, and then along with his confederates, he pursued these men all the way north to Damascus, which is really quite a distance from where they were. Now, For such a small group to gain a victory against the army of four kings, it's obvious that God was working through Abram to accomplish something here. Now, God's plan called for Abram to divide his servants. So not only did he start off with a much smaller group, 300 men, he divided his army into even smaller groups, right? With each group attacking separately. Now, by the power of God, Abram was given a victory, and now he's returning with Lot and all the people who had been taken as slaves along with all the booty of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, next we come to a very important and interesting section of the verses. All these previous verses, I've just kind of outlined the story for you here just so you know what's going on. But all these previous verses of chapter 14 have kind of set the stage for why God chose to list this battle. And think about it. Out of all the other battles that must have taken place since the flood occurred, God chose to record this battle and he chose these kings to play a part in this story. Now, he's using these events to build the faith of Abram. Now, that's an important thing for us to learn from. The rest is really just an interesting story because, again, the important thing is how did uh, God build Abram's faith? Now, the story is a background for what God did with Abram. So the first thing we will see is a meeting between Abram and the king of Salem. And then we'll see a particularly seductive temptation of Abram when the meeting between Abram and the king of Sodom occurs. So let's get into it. Verse 17. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of shedor leamur and of the kings that were with him and at the valley of Sheba, which is the king's dale. Now notice that the king of Sodom is mentioned first. But God's not ready for Abram to meet this king yet. God will always prepare us for the temptations or trials that we will face. And in this case, God brings the king of Salem out to meet Abram first. That king's name is Melchizedek. Melchizedek, oh, such an important name. Such an important, important name. Man, I, I love teaching about Melchizedek. I really do. Notice that the king of Sodom is mentioned first, but it's Melchizedek that gets to Abram first. Verses 18 and 19, it says, And Melchizedek, king of Salem brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven, and Earth, okay. Now, these two verses are really easy to just read and just pass on by if you're trying to read through the story. Yeah, it's just like one of the other stories. I know a king came out and visited Abram. And that's not really that important, right? Oh, yes, it is. If you, if you read right past this and you don't dig down into what this is, you miss out on some very important things that God has for us to learn. Now, notice that God tells us what Melchizedek did when he met Abram. It says that, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. Now, as I read these verses, several questions just jump right out at me. To begin with, where did this man Melchizedek come from? He just walks out onto the page of Scripture with bread and wine, and he blesses Abram, and then he walks off the pages of Scripture again. It makes me want to know where he came from, and then I wonder where is he going. And I wonder what his business is when he's not out. Greeting Abram, right? Now the scripture tells us that he is the king of Salem. But it also tells us that he is a priest of the most high God. Okay, now that brings up a whole other question. How did this guy find out about the most high God? I mean, for him to be a priest of this most high God, then he had to find out about him from somewhere, right? He had to have a pretty good relationship with him. Right? So where was that? Where did he learn about the Most High God? Now, Melchizedek describes God as the Most High God, which means the creator of heaven and earth. In other words, the living God, the God of Genesis 1, the God of Noah, and the God of Enoch, this is the one true God that this king named Melchizedek is the priest of. Now, if you really think about it, the truth of the matter is that this really shouldn't surprise us because the Bible tells us that all men had a knowledge of the living and true God and then turned away. Romans 121 says, because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, if you read on further in that uh, chapter of the book of Romans, Paul goes on to say that men continued to turn away from God until they reached the point where they began to worship the creature instead of the Creator. Now, yeah. right in the middle of all this apostasy of Abram's time, here's a man who is a high priest of the world of that day. He has a knowledge of the living and true God. He is a priest of the living and true God. And he comes out bringing bread and wine to Abram. So now that leads us to the next question. Why did he bring bread and wine? I mean, those are the elements of the Lord's Supper, right? How could he know about the importance of these elements? Well, of course, the answer is simple because God revealed it to him. But this is just amazing when you think about it. He is bringing out bread and wine, the elements that we're going to use as the Lord's Supper. Now it's because of these questions and the importance of the message behind the answers that I'm going to give you today that I want to spend some time today talking about Melchizedek, who he is and what the Bible has to say about him. So Melchizedek is mentioned three times in the Bible. In addition to this set of verses, he's mentioned several times in the book of Hebrews and then again, in the book of Psalms. All three books talk about Melchizedek as being a priest, and it's in the comparison of our great high priest, Jesus Christ, to Melchizedek that we begin to get an idea of who this stranger really is. Hebrews 7, two says, To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being, by interpretation, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So, notice that Paul and what Paul says of Melchizedek, he says, king of Salem, which is king of peace. So, Paul describes Salem as meaning peace. Now, therefore, Melchizedek was a king of peace. He was a man who could make peace in that day. He was a king of Salem, which my Schofield reference Bible says is ancient Jerusalem. Okay. But in this verse, Melchizedek is described as the king of peace. Now, Paul goes on to describe him as first being, by interpretation, king of righteousness. So Melchizedek was also the king of righteousness. Now, that is actually what the name of Melchizedek means. Malik is a Hebrew word meaning king, and Tezdeck means righteousness. So we begin to understand that Melchizedek is a type of Christ or an illustration of Christ. Now, personally, I believe that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnation visit of the Lord Jesus Christ to Abram. But at the very least, if, that was, if that's not true, I, don't, I think it is true, uh, because I think by the time we get done talking to, uh, about him today, you're going to agree with me on that. All right. But, uh, but at the very least, he is a type or an illustration of Christ that is mentioned in the 14th uh, chapter of the book of Genesis, looking all that way forward to Christ, right? Now, as a symbol of Christ, Melchizedek represents Christ in many ways. Melchizedek is a king of peace and righteousness. And of course, the Bible describes Jesus Christ as the king of righteousness, right? And in addition, Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God, and Jesus Christ is our great High priest. And notice what else that Abraham or Abram did. Paul tells us to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. So Melchizedek was paid tithes by Abraham himself. Now, this is significant because it means that Abraham honored Melchizedek because he was superior to Abraham. Now, think about that for a moment. Who could be superior in the eyes of God than Abraham? Who could be more superior in the eyes of God than Abraham, the very first man to whom God gave his great promise? Abraham was a very special person to God, and this tells us that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. Verse uh, 3, chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews says, Without father, without mother without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Oh, who does that sound like? Right? But made like unto the Son of God, abideth a priest continually. Now, this is interesting. This this is really getting interesting, right? Paul tells us something else about Melchizedek, and that is very special. He says, without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So here Melchizedek is a picture of Christ and that Melchizedek is described without a genealogy. Now this is in the book of Genesis, which is a book of genealogy, right? All of the important characters of the book of Genesis are described by what? Their genealogy. Yet here is a man that has no beginning and no end. I mean, how many times have you read about somebody, a main character, and it says uh, that he was born of this person and he lived 75 years or 900 years, and then he did what? He died, right? Now, there's none of that about Melchizedek, right? He has no beginning. He has no end. And so Melchizedek just walks onto the pages of Scripture, and then he walks off the pages of Scripture, and we don't see him anymore. My, 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 who is this? So Paul describes, uh, continues to describe Melchizedek when he says, But made like unto the Son of God abideth a priest, continually. Now, this compares to the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he comes out of eternity, and he comes uh, into eternity, right? Uh, Christ, when he became uh, 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 the incarnate Christ, in man came out of eternity, into eternity, He had no beginning and no end. He is the beginning. He is the end. You can't go beyond Christ in the past, and you can't go beyond him in the future. He encompasses all of time and all of eternity. Now, Melchizedek's priesthood symbolized the eternal nature of Christ's priesthood because he had no genealogy, and there was no beginning or end to his priesthood. It says, he abideth a priest, how? continually, right? So then from the book of Psalms, we see the prophecy of Christ's priesthood, and it is compared to the order of Melchizedek instead of the order of Aaron, which was a temporary priesthood because each priest died and had to be replaced. Now Psalms 110.4 says, The Lord hath sworn and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, notice that phrase, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So we see that Melchizedek is a type of Christ and that the Lord Jesus is the eternal God. Christ is a priest because he is the son of God and he is a priest continually. There will be no change in his priesthood because he is eternal. Melchizedek is that same kind of priest. Hebrews 7, 4 says, Now consider how great this man was, unto whom even the patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of the spoils. So when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, he recognized that Melchizedek was above him and that he was a priest of the Most High God. Verse 5 of chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews says, And verily, they that are the sons of Levi, who received the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, even though or though they came, or they come out of the loins of Abraham. Now, this can be confusing, but what this verse is telling us is that in Abraham, the sons of Levi, who were descended from Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek. And because Melchizedek was superior to Abraham, then this shows that Melchizedek was superior to Aaron and his family, who were the descendants of Abraham. And so Melchizedek was a priest that was superior to Abraham, and he was superior to all of the other high priests that came from the tribe of Levi. Now, this is important for us to recognize as we bring our gifts and our tithes to our great high priest, Jesus Christ, because our tithes and offerings are more than just gifts to our church. They are gifts to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you're really giving these tithes to. Now, by returning to Christ, what is rightfully his, we are recognizing his lordship over us, and we are ourselves a priest worshiping our own great high priest when we bring gifts to him. Now, just as Aaron and the tribe of Levi were priests making offerings to God, we're making our offerings to God as well. Well, this is all symbolized by Abram giving tithes under this priest, Melchizedek. Verse 6 of chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews says, But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. Oh, my, my, my. Notice what this verse says. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham. Now this is telling us that not only was Melchizedek superior to Abraham as a priest, he was a Gentile high priest of the most high God. He wasn't of the line of Abraham. He wasn't a Hebrew. So verse 7 then goes on to saying, without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. So If you didn't agree with me that this made him uh, more or superior to Abraham, here it is right here in the verse. It says, notice the key phrase here. The less is blessed of the better. This means that Abraham was blessed by Melchizedek, who was better than Abraham was. Abraham recognized the superiority of Melchizedek and was blessed by him. So when you and I worship the Lord Jesus and bow before him, we are recognizing his superiority. He is better than us. We worship somebody who is better and superior to us. You agree with that? Amen? Yeah, we don't worship somebody who's less than us. We worship somebody who is far superior to us. And, and verse 8 says, and here men that die receive tithes. But there he receiveth them, of whom it is witness that he liveth. And notice the phrase, and here men that die receive tithes. Now, this refers to the Levi priest. And the problem was that the Levi priests they died and they had to be replaced all the time. So Paul compares them to Melchizedek when he says, but there he receiveth them. This means that Melchizedek was was a greater priest than all of the earthly priests because he pointed to the eternal high priest, Jesus Christ. Melchizedek represented the perfect and eternal priesthood and he pointed towards the priesthood of God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you see why I think this was Christ in in a pre-incarnate visit uh, as well? So with all this in mind, we're ready to go back to verse 18 of the book of uh, Genesis in chapter 14 and look at what Melchizedek does in these verses. And we see that Melchizedek's purpose in appearing to Abraham was to prepare him for the visit by the king of Sodom. So Abraham's preparation begins in verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of uh, Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. So why does Melchizedek bring forth the bread and the wine? Well, he is anticipating the death of Christ on the cross as a sacrifice for our sins, just as we remember the sacrifice of Christ when we partake of the Lord's Supper. First Corinthians eleven twenty-six says, For as often as ye eat this bread... And drink this cup ye do show the Lord's death till he come. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? This, this far in front of when Christ was coming. But Genesis fourteen, nineteen says, And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the most high God, possessor of heaven and earth. And notice the words, and he blessed him. So it is on the basis that Melchizedek is looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ, that he blesses Abraham. The uh, wine and the bread tells us that was his basis. And then notice that Melchizedek described Abram as being of the Most High God. Abram is of the Most High God. Now, that's an interesting phrase, and it is in these three verses, 18 through 20, that we see the first use of the Hebrew word El Yon to describe God. Now, the word Yon simply means the highest. El Yon means God the highest, the word El in front of El Yon, the two words together, means God the highest, the creator of heaven and earth, the living God, the God of Noah the God of Enoch, the one true God. So Melchizedek also describes God as the possessor of heaven and earth. And as possessor of heaven and earth, the most high God has all authority in both heaven and earth. Verse 20 says, and blessed be the most high God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thine hand, and he gave him tithes of all. So notice what Abram did. He gave him tithes of all. And Abram's response to the blessing by Melchizedek was immediate and spiritual. He gave tithes to Melchizedek, and in this case, giving is an act of worship, which it should be in our uh, giving as well, a spiritual response to the contemplation of Calvary. And then Abram was refreshed in his relationship with God, just as we are when we partake of the Lord's Supper. Now, by sending Melchizedek, God has prepared Abram, and in an attitude of worship and humble thanksgiving, Abram received a blessing from the priest king and learned a new name for God, the Most High God, Possessor of Heaven and Earth. I'm just going to pause. I'm going to take a deep breath. I've been going like... uh, 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 a train, right? Uh, I I accuse my black lab of being like a freight train on our wood floors because he can't stop. I mean, once he gets going, he just runs into whatever's going to be there, right? And everything goes crashing. So I'm going to pause. Any questions about Melchizedek? Okay, let's keep going. So next we continue the story with the event of Abram's temptation. So having been prepared by God in this meeting with Melchizedek, Abram's now ready to meet the king of Sodom. Now, it is important for us to see that if Melchizedek typifies Christ, then the king of Sodom typifies who? Satan. Yeah, Satan. Verses 21 through 24 of chapter 14 of the book of Genesis says, And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. You see him using his new name for God there? and that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich, save only that which the young man had eaten, and a portion of the men which went with me, Anor, Escol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Now notice what the king of Sodom said. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons, and take the goods to thyself. Now, this temptation of Abram is really subtle here, right? The king of Sodom wanted the souls. Abram could have all the spoils. Now, what was so subtle about this is that Abram, under the laws of that day, had full rights to claim everything, both the people and the spoils. The king of Sodom had no right to come and ask him for anything, right? Yet the king of Sodom was going to be gracious enough to tell Abram, what he could have. Now Abram responded, and Abram said unto the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And of course we know that Satan will trade earthly riches for souls all day long, right? But Abram was ready. He had a testimony. I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And he goes on by saying that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou shouldest say, I have made Abram rich. Now, Abram wanted nothing from Sodom or Sodom's king. He had just received a fresh revelation from God, and in that revelation, he stood firm. Abram wanted the king of Sodom to have no hold or claim to anything that Abram was to become. Abram knows that is the power of God that is going to be shown in the blessing of his physical and spiritual well-being. So what we see here is a dynamic believer, absolutely victorious over the world and over the flesh and the devil, making a statement of his faith in the Most High God. And then we have Lot. Oh, Lot, what did he do? He goes right back to Sodom to be enriched by the king of Sodom and the world he represents. So this brings us to the next important concept that Abram learned, and as it is something that we must learn as well, and that is God as a shield and a reward. So Lot was gone. The king of Sodom had left. Melchizedek had left. Aner, Eshcol and Mamre, who were Abram's confederates in going after the prisoners, they had also left. So Abram was alone to contemplate the events that had just occurred. I'm sure there was still this feeling of the glow of his experience with Melchizedek still upon him. And that is then that God appears to him. Chapter 15, verse 1. And After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now I want you to notice first that this answers the questions of whether God appeared to Abraham and whether he spoke audibly to him. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. So he had to appear in a vision, just like he did with Saul on the road to Damascus, right? And I believe it was probably Christ who appeared to, to Abram as well uh, in this vision. And what did he do? Saying, meaning he talked. It makes it clear to me that God did indeed appear to Abraham, and that he spoke audibly to him, And what does God say to Abram? God tells Abram, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. And this is now the fourth time that God has appeared to Abram. And God is developing this man and is bringing him further along. And God appears to Abram now because he has taken this tremendous step of faith in going out and rescuing Lot and in turning down the booty which the king of Sodom had offered him. So now in this verse, we see God giving Abram a pledge. And the first part of that pledge was God, it was that God was Abram's shield. And how was God Abram's shield? Well, first we saw that God had been Abram's shield in the battle that had just taken place, placing his hand of protection all around Abram. And next, God has also shielded Abram from Satan's temptation by sending Melchizedek to prepare and arm him. And yet the most important part of the pledge is that God was saying that he is and will continue to be his shield. And God continues his pledge by then saying, and thy exceeding great reward. So God's pledge included the promise that God would also be Abram's reward. So first, Abram had just turned down a king's ransom based on his faith in the pledge of God. And then God had used Melchizedek to bless Abram And next, Abram believed in what God had promised to him. Now to understand Abram and the message that God has for us in these verses, you have to understand that Abram grew in his faith because, why? He believed the words and the promises of God. Abram heard God's word and he believed and acted on those promises. That is the very definition of our faith. We've had that in our lesson. Abram acted and believed on the promises of God and the word of God. That's the very definition of faith. And then after God's pledge, we see Abram's plea, verses 2 and 3, chapter 15. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is this Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. So, what Abram is saying to God is this. Listen, I don't want more riches. I don't need that. The thing that, I, uh, that is on my heart is that I am childless and I want a son. You promised to make me a father of nations and that my offspring will be as numberless as the sand on the seashore, but I don't even have one child. And he's over 75 years old. I mean, he's, uh, he's well into probably his 80s by now, right? And, and Abram's concern was that according to the law of the day, Eliezer, his head servant, who had an offspring, would in time inherit if Abraham did not have a child or a seed. So in response to Abraham's plea, God revealed his plan. Verse 4 says, And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. So God tells Abraham that Eliezer's son will not be his heir, God is saying that He will provide Abraham a son of his own, and yet God did not stop there. He said something else to Abram. He had something else to show to Abram. Verse 5, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. Oh my, look at what that verse says. You know, men used to think that they could count the stars. Now, we know that they are innumerable, right? Sir James Jeans has said that there are more stars in space than there are grains of sand on all the seashores of the world. That's a lot of stars. God's promise to Abram was enough to stagger the imagination. Yet it was not impossible for the Most High God. A God who can create the limitless universe can fulfill His promise to Abram. Now, Abram actually has two seeds. He has the physical seed, the nation of Israel, and he has a spiritual seed, which is the church. And how does the church become Abraham's spiritual seed? By faith. Paul told the Galatians that they were the sons of Abram by faith in Jesus Christ, not in a natural line, but a spiritual seed. Galatians 3 6 through 9 says, even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith preached before the gospel unto Abraham saying, in these shall all nations be blessed. So then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. So we have seen in our lesson today the growth of the faith in this man called Abraham. He's quickly becoming the man of faith that God wants him to be, that there are many more lessons for him to learn. Amen? You guys got any more lessons to learn? Amen. I got a whole bunch more, yeah. (laughs) Well, Abram has a few more that we're going to cover as well.